Chapter 51 of Is He Pope and Joy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. Nevets. Is He Pope and Joy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 51 Gus Mildmay's Success. The treatment which the Marquis received at Rudham did not certainly imply any feeling that he had disgraced himself by what he had done, either at Manor Cross or up in London. Perhaps the ladies there did not know as much of his habits as did Mrs. Walker at Scumberg's. Perhaps the feeling was strong that Popenjoy was Popenjoy, and therefore the Marquis had been injured. If a child be born in British purple, true purple, though it may have been stained by circumstances, that purple is very sacred. Perhaps it was thought that under no circumstances should a Marquis be knocked into the fireplace by a clergyman. There was still a good deal of mystery, both as to Popenjoy and as to the fireplace, and the Marquis was the hero of these mysteries. Everyone at Rudham was anxious to sit by his side and to be allowed to talk to him. When he abused the Dean, which he did freely, those who heard him assented to all he said. The Baroness Banman held up her hands in horror when she heard the tale, and declared the church to be one grand bertise. Mrs. Houghton, who was very attentive to the Marquis, and whom the Marquis liked, was pertinacious in her inquiries after Popenjoy, and cruelly sarcastic upon the Dean. "'Think, what was his bringing up?' said Mrs. Houghton. "'In a stable,' said the Marquis. "'I always felt it to be a great pity.' that Lord George should have made that match. Not but what she is a good creature in her way. She is no better than she should be, said the Marquis. Then Mrs. Houghton found herself able to insinuate that perhaps, after all, Mary was not a good creature, even in her own way. But the Marquis's chief friend was Jack de Baron. He talked to Jack about races and billiards and women. But though he did not refrain from abusing the Dean, he said no word to Jack against Mary. If it might be that the Dean should receive his punishment in that direction, he would do nothing to prevent it. They tell me she is a beautiful woman. I have never seen her myself, said the Marquis. She is very beautiful, said Jack. Why the devil she should have married George, I can't think. She doesn't care for him the least. Don't you think she does? I'm sure she don't. I suppose her pestilent father thought it was the nearest way to a coronet. I don't know why men should marry at all. They always get into trouble by it. Somebody must have children, suggested Jack. I don't see the necessity. It's nothing to do with me what comes of the property after I'm gone. What is it, madam? They were sitting out on the lawn after lunch, and Jack and the Marquis were both smoking. As they were talking, the Baroness had come up to them and made her little proposition. What? A lecture? If Mr. de Baron pleases, of course. I never listen to lectures myself, except from my wife. Ah, that is what I want to prevent. I prevented it already by sending her to Italy. Oh, rights of women. Very interesting, but I don't think I am well enough myself. Here is Captain de Baron, a young man as strong as a horse, and very fond of women. He'll sit it out. I beg your pardon? What is it? 
Then the Baroness, with rapid words, told her own sad story. She had been deluded, defrauded, and ruined by those wicked females, Lady Selina Protest and Dr. Fleabody. The Marquis was a nobleman whom all England, nay, all Europe, delighted to honour. Could not the Marquis do something for her? She was rapid and eloquent, but not always intelligible. What is it she wants? asked the Marquis, turning to Jack. Pecuniary assistance, I think, my lord. Ya, ya, I have been bamboozled of everything, my lord Marquis. Oh, my, de Baron shouldn't have let me in for this. Would you mind telling my fellow to give her a ten-pound note? Jack said that he would not mind, and the Baroness stuck to him pertinaciously, not leaving his side a moment till she had got the money. Of course, there was no lecture. The Baroness was made to understand that visitors at a country house in England could not be made to endure such an infliction, but she succeeded in levying a contribution from Mrs. Montacute Jones, and there were rumours afloat that she got a sovereign out of Mr. Houghton. Lord Giblet had come with the intention of staying a week, but the day after the attack made upon him by Mrs. Montacute Jones, news arrived which made it absolutely necessary that he should go to Castle Gosling at once. "'We shall be so sorry to miss you,' said Mrs. Montacute Jones, whom he tried to avoid in making his general adieu, but who was a great deal too clever not to catch him. "'My father wants to see me about the property, you know. Of course, there must be a great deal to do between you.' Everybody who knew the affairs of the family was aware that the old Earl never thought of consulting his son, and Mrs. Montacute Jones knew everything. "'Ever so much. Therefore, I must be off at once.' My fellow is packing my things now, and there is a train in an hour's time. Did you hear from Olivia this morning? Not to-day. I hope you are as proud as you ought to be of having such a sweet girl belonging to you. Nasty old woman! What right had she to say these things? I told Mrs. Green that you were here, and that you were coming to meet Olivia on the 27th. What did she say? She thinks you ought to see Mr. Green as you go through London. He is the easiest, most good-natured man in the world. Don't you think you might as well speak to him? Who was Mrs. Montacute Jones that she should talk to him in this way? I would send a telegram if I were you, to say I would be there tonight. Perhaps it would be best, said Lord Giblet. Oh, certainly. Now mind, we expect you to dinner on the 27th. Is there anybody else you'd especially like me to ask? Nobody in particular. Thank you. Isn't Jack de Baron a friend of yours? Yes, I like Jack pretty well. He thinks a great deal of himself, you know. All the young men do that now. At any rate, I'll ask Jack to meet you. Unfortunately for Lord Giblet, Jack appeared in sight at this very moment. Captain de Baron, Lord Giblet has been good enough to say that he'll come to my little place at Killancodlam on the 27th. Can you meet him there? Delighted, Mrs. Jones. Who ever refuses to go to Killancodlam? It isn't Killancodlam and its little comforts that are bringing his lordship. We shall be delighted to see him, but he is coming to see, well, I suppose it's no secret now, Lord Giblet? Jack bowed his congratulations, and Lord Giblet again blushed as red as a rose. Detestable old woman, whither should he take himself? In what furthest part of the Rocky Mountains should he spend the coming autumn? If neither Mr. nor Mrs. Green called upon him for an explanation, what possible right could this abominable old harpy have to prey upon him? Just at the end of a cotillon, 
he had said one word. He knew men who had done ten times as much and had not been as severely handled. And he was sure that Jack de Baron had had something to do with it. Jack had been hand in hand with Mrs. Jones at the making up of the Kappa Kappa. But as he went to the station he reflected that Olivia Green was a very nice girl. If those ten thousand pounds were true, they would be a great comfort to him. His mother was always bothering him to get married. If he could bring himself to accept this as his fate, he would be saved a deal of trouble. Spooning at Killancodlam, after all, would not be bad fun. He almost told himself that he would marry Miss Green, were it not that he was determined not to be dictated to by that old Harridan. Many people came and went at Rudden Park, but among those who did not go was Gus Mildmay. Aunt Julia, who had become thoroughly ashamed of the Baroness, had wished to take her departure on the third day, but Gus had managed to stop her. "'What's the good of coming to a house for three days? You said you meant to stay a week. They know what she is now, and the harm's done. It was your own fault for bringing her. I don't see why I'm to be thrown over because you've made a mistake about a vulgar old woman.' We've nowhere to go till November, and now we are out of town, for heaven's sake. Let us stay as long as we can. In this way, Gus carried her point, watching her opportunity for a little conversation with her former lover. At last the opportunity came. It was not that Jack had avoided her, but that it was necessary that she should be sure of having half an hour alone with him. At last she made the opportunity, calling upon him to walk with her one Sunday morning, when all the other folk were in church, or perhaps in bed. No, I won't go to church, she had said to Aunt Ju. What is the use of you asking why not? I won't go. They're quite accustomed at Rudham to people not going to church. I always go in a stiff house, but I won't go here. When you're at Rome, you should do as the Romans do. I don't suppose there'll be half a dozen there out of the whole party. Aunt Ju went to church as a matter of course and the opportunity of walking in the grounds with Jack was accomplished. "'Are you going to kill and coddle him?' she said. "'I suppose I shall, for a few days. "'Have you got anything to say before you go?' "'Nothing particular. "'Of course, I don't mean to me. "'I've nothing particular to say to anybody just at present. "'Since I've been here, that wretched old Marquis has been my chief fate. "'It's quite a pleasure to hear him abuse the Dean.' and the dean's daughter? He has not much good to say about her either. I'm not surprised at that, Jack. And what do you say to him about the dean's daughter? Very little, Gus. And what are you going to say to me about her? Nothing at all, Gus. She's all the world to you, I suppose. What's the use of your saying that? In one sense she's nothing to me. My belief is that the only man she'll ever care a pin about is her husband. At any rate, she does not care a straw for me. Nor you for her? Well, yes I do. She's one of my pet friends. There's nobody I like being with better. And if she were not married, God knows what might have happened. I might have asked her to have me, because she has got money of her own. What's the use of coming back to the old thing, Gus? Money, money, money. Nothing more unfair was ever said to anyone. Have I given any signs of selling myself for money? Have I been a fortune hunter? No one has ever found me guilty of so much prudence. All I say is that having found out the way to go to the devil myself, 
I won't take any young woman I like with me there by marrying her. Heavens and earth! I can fancy myself returned from a wedding tour with some charmer, like you, without a shilling at my bankers and beginning life at lodgings, somewhere down at Chelsea. Have you no imagination? Can't you see what it would be? Can't you fancy the stuffy sitting-room with the horsehair chairs, and the hashed mutton, and the cradle in the corner before long? No, I can't, said Gus. I can. Two cradles, and very little of the hashed mutton, and my lady wife with no one to pin her dress for her but the maid of all work with black fingers. It wouldn't be like that. It very soon would, if I were to marry a girl without a fortune. And I know myself. I'm a very good fellow while the sun shines, but I couldn't stand hardship. I shouldn't come home to the hash mutton. I should dine at the club, even though I had to borrow the money. I should come to hate the cradle and its occupant, and the mother of its occupant. I should take to drink, and should blow my brains out just as the second cradle came. I can see it all as plain as a pikestaff. I often lay awake the whole night and look at it. You and I, Gus, have made a mistake from the beginning. Being poor people, we have lived as though we were rich. I have never done so. Oh yes, you have. Instead of dining out in Fitzroy Square and drinking tea in Tavistock Place, you have gone to balls in Grosvenor Square and been presented at court. It wasn't my fault. It has been so, and therefore you should have made up your mind to marry a rich man. Who was it asked me to love him? Say that I did if you please. Upon my word I forget how it began, but say that it was my fault. Of course it was my fault. Are you going to blow me up for that? I see a girl, and at first I like her, and then I love her, and then I tell her so, or else she finds it out without my telling. Was that a sin you can't forgive? I never said it was a sin. I don't mind being a worm, but I won't be trodden upon over much. Was there ever a moment in which you thought that I thought of marrying you? A great many, Jack. Did I ever say so? Never. I'll do you justice there. You have been very cautious. Of course you can be severe, and of course I am bound to bear it. I have been cautious, for your sake. Oh, Jack, for your sake, when I first saw how it was going to be, how it might be between you and me, I took care to say outright that I couldn't marry unless a girl had money. There will be something, when Papa dies, the most healthy middle-aged gentleman in London. There might be half a dozen cradles, Gus, before that day. If it will do you good, you shall say I am the greatest rascal walking. That will do me no good. But I don't know that I can give you any other privilege. Then there was a long pause, during which they were sauntering together under an old oak tree in the park. Do you love me, Jack? she then asked, standing close to him. God bless my soul. That's going back to the beginning. You are heartless, absolutely heartless. It has come to that with you, that any real idea of love is out of the question. I can't afford it, my dear. But is there no such thing as love that you can't help? Can you drop a girl out of your heart altogether simply because she has got no money? I suppose you did love me once. Here Jack scratched his head. You did love me once, she said, persevering with her question. Of course I did, said Jack who had no objection to making assurances of the past. And you don't now? Whoever said so, what's the good of talking about it? Do you think you owe me nothing? 
What's the good of owing if a man can't pay his debts? You will own nothing then. Yes, I will. If anyone left me twenty thousand pounds tomorrow, then I should owe you something. What would he owe me? Half of it. And how would you pay me? He thought a while before he made his answer. He knew in that case he would not wish to pay the debt in the only way in which it would be payable. You mean then that you would marry me? I shouldn't be afraid of the hash mutton and cradles. In that case you would marry me. A man has no right to take so much on himself as to say that. Psst! I suppose I should. I should make a devilish bad husband even then. Why should you be worse than others? I don't know. Perhaps I was made worse. I can't fancy myself doing any duty well. If I had a wife of my own, I should be sure to fall in love with somebody else's. Lady George, for instance? No, not Lady George. It would not be with somebody whom I had learned to think the very best woman in all the world. I am very bad, but I am just not bad enough to make love to her. Or rather, I am very foolish, but just not foolish enough to think that I could win her. I suppose she's just the same as the others, Jack. She's not just the same to me, but I'd rather not talk about her, Gus. I'm going to kill in Cottenham in a day or two, and I shall leave this tomorrow. Tomorrow? Well, yes, tomorrow. I must be a day or two in town, and there is not much doing here. I'm tired of the old Marquis, who is the most ill-natured brute I ever came across in my life. And there's no more fun to be made of the Baroness. I'm not sure but that she has the best of the fun. I didn't think there was an old woman in the world could get a five-pound note out of me, but she had. How could you be so foolish? How indeed? You'll go back to London? I suppose so. Unless I drown myself. Don't do that, Gus. I often think it would be best. You don't know what my life is. How wretched. And you made it so. Is that fair, Gus? Quite fair. Quite true. You have made it miserable. You know you have. Of course you know it. Can I help it now? Yes, you can. I can be patient if you will say that it shall be some day. I could put up with anything if you would let me hope. When you have got that twenty thousand pounds, but I shall never have it. If you do, will you marry me then? Will you promise me that you will never marry anybody else? I never shall. But will you promise me, if you will not say so much as that to me, you must be false indeed? When you have the twenty thousand pounds, will you marry me? Oh, certainly. And you can laugh about such a matter when I am pouring out my very soul to you? You can make a joke of it when it is all my life to me. Jack, if you will say that it shall happen some day, some day, I will be happy. If you won't, I can only die. It may be play to you, but it's death to me. He looked at her and saw that she was quite in earnest. She was not weeping, but there was a drawn, heavy look about her face which, in truth, touched his heart. Whatever might be his faults, he was not a cruel man. He had defended himself without any scruples of conscience when she had seemed to attack him, but now he did not know how to refuse her request. It amounted to so little. I don't suppose it will ever take place, but I think I ought to allow myself to consider myself as engaged to you, she said. As it is, you are free to marry anyone else, he replied. I don't care for such freedom. 
I don't want it. I couldn't marry a man whom I didn't love. Nobody knows what that they can do till they're tried. Do you suppose, sir, I've never been tried? But I can't bring myself to laugh now, Jack. Don't joke now. Heaven knows when we may see each other again. You will promise me that, Jack. Yes, if you wish it. And so, at last, she had got a promise from him. She said nothing more to fix it, fearing that in doing so she might lose it. But she threw herself into his arms and buried her face upon his bosom. Afterwards, when she was leaving him, she was very solemn in her manner to him. I will say good-bye now, Jack, for I shall hardly see you again to speak to. You do love me. You know I do. I am so true to you. I have always been true to you. God bless you, Jack. Write me a line sometimes. Then he escaped, having brought her back to the garden among the flowers, and he wandered away by himself across the park. At last he had engaged himself. He knew that it was so, and he knew that she would tell all her friends. Adelaide Houghton would know, and would, of course, congratulate him. There never could be a marriage. That would, of course, be out of the question. But, instead of being Jack de Baron of old, at any rate free as air, he would be the young man engaged to marry Augusta Mildmay. And then he could hardly now refuse to answer the letters which she would be sure to write to him, at least twice a week. There had been a previous period of letter-writing, but that had died a natural death through utter neglect on his part. But now it might be as well that he should take advantage of the new law and exchange into an Indian regiment. But even in his present condition, his mind was not wholly occupied with Augusta Mildmay. The evil words which had been spoken to him of Mary had not been altogether fruitless. His cousin Adelaide had told him over and over again that Lady George was as other women, by which his cousin had intended to say that Lady George was the same as herself. Augusta Mildmay had spoken of his phoenix in the same strain. The Marquis had declared her to be utterly worthless. It was not that he wished to think of her as they thought, or that he could be brought so to think, but these suggestions, coming as they did from those who knew how much he liked the woman, amounted to ridicule aimed against the purity of his worship. They told him, almost told him, that he was afraid to speak of love to Lady George. Indeed he was afraid, and within his own breast he was in some sort proud of his fear. But, nevertheless, he was touched by their ridicule. He and Mary had certainly been dear friends. Certainly that friendship had given great umbrage to her husband. Was he bound to keep away from her because of her husband's anger? He knew that they too were not living together. He knew that the dean would at any rate welcome him. And he knew, too, that there was no human being he wished to see again as much as Lady George. He had no purpose as to anything that he would say to her but he was resolved that he would see her. If then some word warmer than any he had yet spoken should fall from him, he would gather from her answer what her feelings were towards him. In going back to London on the morrow, he must pass by Brotherton, and he would make his arrangements so as to remain there for an hour or two. End of chapter 51